You are listening to Beyond Smart Buildings by PropMoto, where we explore the eight principles that go into intelligent space. To listen to other episodes from this series, just search for PropMoto wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hi, everybody. My name is Franco. I'm the editor of PropMoto, and thanks for listening to this podcast about smart buildings. In this series, I've been looking at eight different principles that we need to have for a building to be able to call itself smart. Here to help me understand these principles a little bit better is Vincent Dermody, uh, who has spent much of his career crafting these frameworks around the way we think about buildings. Hi, Vinny. Hi, Franco. So today's episode is a a particularly important principle, right? This idea of uh, inclusion. And, and I think it's important to remember that, you know, inclusion actually is a little bit of a loaded word, right? We, we come into this with some preconceived notions about this idea of inclusion, but they're a little bit different when we think about how, uh, what that means for a smart building. Yeah. Yes, Franco. While most people think of inclusion, they think of racial diversity, and that is really an important aspect. But it is the idea of, the idea of inclusion doesn't just stop there. When we think about how buildings should be designed for everybody, it should include everybody. We have to think about all of the ways that people can be unique. We have to think about people with different abilities and preferences. This is true for both the digital and the physical layers of the building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, since many companies are, are, are looking to their workspace to help kind of manifest their own corporate values of inclusion, you know, it's vital that, that these ideas come through in, in their office building, right? That's the, the physical connection they have with a lot of their, their employees. You know? So uh, for this episode, I was uh, able to talk to a change management expert that has helped companies uh, and property firms reinvent themselves to better align with their goals, their market, and their people. Hi, my name is Lisa Harvey. For the last 20 years, I've uh, led culture and capability transformation. Um, but for me, my passion is about leading people, and I've led global teams um, for the past 30 years, and I love being able to provide an environment for people to step in and thrive. There's been a collision recently between workplace and HR departments and corporations, as the business world is learning the importance of the physical office on employee health and well-being. It is this collision that created a vacuum for people like Lisa, eventually sucking her right in. I had been in a a HR business partner role for about three years in an organization. And my director came to me and said, the workspace team are doing this project where we're looking to save um, 30% of our costs by um, going to activity-based working. Can you um, go and meet the project team and make sure that they're aligning to our flexible work policy? And I went, yeah, sure. Um, Hadn't had any involvement with workplace. My mindset at that point in time was you have a desk, you have a meeting room, you have your kitchen, and that's about it. And when I went into the room um, to meet the project team, they'd been told I was coming in to be the change lead and uh, because I I had a change background. And I said, oh, no, I'm just here to talk to you about policy and making sure that you're aligning whatever you're doing design-wise to policy. And they said, no, no, they, they told us you knew the change. And I went away and thought about it. And I then thought, yeah, okay, I'll give this a crack. Coming from HR gave Lisa a unique view of how a workplace should benefit a company and its employees. But it also gave her an outsider's view of the office that led her to ask the difficult first principle question. Why do we need a workplace at all? 
we'd just come off a workplace transformation and we'd signed an agreement for lease for our new headquarters. Amazing location on Sydney Harbour. Our design partner said it was the best in the world, blah, blah, blah. But instead of actually saying we we're going to replicate the, um, the transformation we just come off the back of or to evolve it, we asked the big question, what, what is the value of even having a common place to an organisation? And so if you think about it, what we're scoping is what's the value of place to an organisation from an exclusion perspective? Lisa was quick to point out that offices are not just important because of what they can do for the people working in them. They can also be seen as a vital part of the profitability and sustainability of a corporation. Place is an organization's visual, physical, and tangible demonstration and differentiation of its brand. It's where people can embody and feel the culture. And if you think about it, it's where the collective come together. And so if I'm a team of 10, I sometimes, if I'm virtual, all I'm going to feel like is I'm part of a team of 10. But if I come to a place that encompasses 3,500 people of my organisation, I'm all of a sudden going to feel like I have a sense of belonging to something that's much far greater than myself, which once again deepens that sense of belonging. There are a lot of similarities between creating corporate policies and designing a building. Both require someone to think long and hard about not just how they will function, but how they will make people feel. What we design, we design place for humans. What's uh, similar to organisations is that you have humans arriving to your workplace. And once again, it comes back to how do you want them to feel? um, What do you want them to think? How do you want them to act? Where it becomes unique for organisations is the nature of their business. So who's their client? And how do they actually connect and engage with their client? Is it in their place of business or is it in another place or is it virtually? What is the nature of their business? What is the nature of their workforce? What is the nature of the work they do? That will all then determine what the value of the workplace is to that organisation. Workplace design seems to keep reinventing itself. Offices were communal, then private, then open. And who can forget the rise and fall of the practical but uninspiring cubicle? Office layout seems to adapt to the new ways that work gets done and to conform to the cultural norms of the time. Now we are in an era where diversity and inclusion are at the forefront of our collective identity. That means that it needs to take a much bigger role in the parameters of the workplace. Lisa thinks that for this to happen, there needs to be a larger place for change management experts like herself. Design has come so far in the last 20 years. They've been a driver of enabling workplace practices, workplace culture, workplace um, connectivity. What we need to do is design needs to still stay at the forefront, but the power shift needs to move to change management. And the reason why I say that is people need to be educated and understanding of the design of the workplace and how it's in service of getting the best out of them. But then when you look at it from a neurodiversity perspective, it's all about energy state. What is my current energy state? What do I need that energy state to be to get the best out of me? And what spaces are going to support me to do that? And at the moment, what we tend to do is we exist in spaces. 
we um, we turn up to a space, we might collaborate, but does that space actually get the best energy state from us? Does it give it our, give our best energy state? And so what I would be hoping is if we educate individuals and leaders to say, okay, this is how I'm feeling right now. Am I, um, am I overwhelmed? Am I overstimulated? Or, and what is my energy state need to be? And what spaces and or actions on my part will help me get to that energy state? And I can do that with dignity um, for myself. And so if we can actually get people to be moving and flowing around space that's right for them, the nature of the work that they're doing and the people they need to connect with, that creates that sense of safety, um, that sense of contribution, that sense of value, respect, and ultimately that sense of belonging, which is all, that's all inclusion. Lisa and her team did what every good designer should do. They went step by step and thought about every possible way that their audience would interact with their product. This led them to classify which part of the workplace people were interacting with and what the intentions of each point of interaction were. So in the first instance, what we're doing is we're designing the human to show up and to evoke and shift emotion in service of performance, advocacy, etc. The second thing we looked at designing for was the diversity of our people. And how do we design equitably for those people? So if you think about it, um, legislation takes care of some elements to do with the diversity of people that show up. And what I'm talking about here is people of disability. Um, what we did was, from an experience perspective, we said, okay, what are the moments that matter that we need to design for diversity with the intent to remove friction and allow flow? with safety, autonomy, and dignity. And the way we did that was we said, okay, what's the particular moment that we're looking to design? And then do we want that moment to be human-led, digitally-led, or spatially-led? And then supported by digital, human, or space. I'll give an example and a tick. To help guide us, whenever we made those decisions, we actually looked to the experience vision that we created, which was in service of the noble purpose of that company, the brand and culture of that company, the principles of that company. And so that was always our guide. And I'll give you a really, this is a really simple example, but if you think about ensuring that you're catering for diversity to create that sense of inclusion, um, we looked at our arrival experience. So did we want our arrival experience to be human-led or digitally-led, i.e., you can actually come in, you've got a, a token on your phone, you can click in and you can walk through. And, yes, it's seamless and it's frictionless, but is that the experience, i.e., what's the emotion we wanted people to have on arriving? And in this particular organisation, their noble purpose was all about help and it was all about the human element of help. Uh, and so what we did was we said, no, for every person that's arriving into our organisation to set them off for the day, we wanted the arrival experience to be human-led and supported by digital to ensure it's frictionless and to enable flow. Safety, contribution, value, respect. 
All of these things are critical to trust, and all of them are a byproduct of inclusion. There is an altruistic aspect of creating an inclusive workplace. After all, who wants someone not to feel safe, valued, or respected at their job? But again, Lisa was quick to point out that organizations exist only thanks to the people working in them. So what is good for the people is good for the organization as a whole. From an inclusion perspective, there is a business imperative and a social responsibility. So from a business imperative, the fastest way to build relationships, trust, respect, and navigate conflict is face-to-face. So if you have connection, trust, and respect, that helps create a sense of safety, confidence, and belonging. And until I can physically feel your energy through a screen or a hologram, physical connection will trump virtual for its speed and effectiveness. Then the second point is, if we think about the incredible speed at which technology is advancing and changing how we live, it's crucial we understand the impact on how we work. And it's our ability to adapt is going to be critical. And so people and teams need to mobilise and organise quickly They need to transfer tacit knowledge. They need to network and build relationships and particularly trust to collaborate to be able to innovate and change. So once again, workplace is not the only place where it can occur, but it's going to be the fastest and most effective way. As we said earlier, talking about inclusion can be tricky. The term takes on a new meaning for almost everyone. What Lisa wanted to talk about rather than trying to define the term, was the outcome of an inclusive environment and why it can help people be both happier and better at their jobs. In an inclusive environment or when inclusion occurs, I would expect to hear things like, I feel safe to show up as myself. I feel seen. I feel safe to speak my mind. I feel heard. I feel respected. I feel valued. I feel a sense of belonging within this collective and or community. And so inclusion is an outcome and it happens at the point of human connection and or congregation. And that's why we'll get onto place being so important to inclusion. And so inclusion is a really hot topic at the moment because of its value. And so it's value to an organisation. If you have an inclusive environment, it's in service of engagement, loyalty, advocacy, and ultimately business performance. But if you combine that then with diversity, that leads to innovation, growth, and profitability. The value of inclusion to a community is it's in service of its mental and emotional well-being. And if you have that in a community, that in turn is its ability to grow and thrive. And for me, I'm really passionate at the moment about this because we know globally we are facing into a mental health crisis. And so we need to look at interventions and constructs that actually support inclusion. Companies should be able to find value in all types of people. For the same reason, workplaces should be designed for all different types of people. Inclusion is having its moment culturally, and rightfully so. Our physical environment has to strive for the same level of inclusivity that we want from our organizations. For this to happen, the gap between the teams that think about the people in an organization and the teams that think about the building 
need to be bridged. It will take a lot more bridge builders like Lisa to ensure that this happens. Thanks for listening. This series is brought to you by Cohen Resnick, a leading U.S. advisory, assurance, and tax firm with a global perspective and extensive experience in commercial real estate. As our post-pandemic world continues to take shape, Cohen Resnick believes that the industry's new normal must be one centered around trust, where investors, tenants, landlords, and communities can trust one another to find common ground while creating value and addressing risk. Visit Cohen Resnick's Resource Center at cohenresnick.com slash building trust for insights and tools to propel your business forward. Again, that's C-O-H-N-R-E-Z-N-I-C-K dot com slash building trust.